Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. So the Young Turks, as we mentioned, as we left off in the last episode, the Young Turks are urgently looking for an ally. They need someone, preferably a powerful European country, to commit to protecting them. The Young Turks were really concerned about the Ottoman Empire's continuing disintegration. They were continually uh, getting smaller and bits and pieces of the empire being broken off. For example, Bosnia and Herzegovina, they were annexed by the, I think it's annexed, they were annexed by the Austria, Austria, Hungary, Austria, Hungary, um, Austrian Hungary kingdom. I'm not going to edit this out. I told you it's a bonus episode. The Austrian Hungary kingdom in 1908. Now, this is very important here. Um, the annexation of the, of the uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, collectively known as Serbia, this would eventually lead to the events that would ultimately spark World War One, which is the essence of this whole story in the first place. So in 1908, the Austria-Hungary kingdom annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina away from the Ottoman Empire. And then in 1912, Italy captured the coast of what is now modern-day Libya, all as well as several islands off the Turkish coast. Also in 1912, Albania revolted against Ottoman rule. And again in 1912 and 1913, a coalition of Balkan states, these included Greece, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Serbia, they allied and defeated the Ottomans in what was known as the First Balkan War in 1912. The Ottomans did regain some of the lost territory in the Second Balkan War in, of 1913, in 1913, but ultimately the Ottoman Empire was slowly shrinking. The Young Turks, they could also see that the other European powers, the more powerful ones, they were probably looking on the Ottoman Empire as the next stage of conquest. Most of the world at this time had already been colonized by the Europeans. The British, they controlled a quarter of the globe, while the Russians controlled a sixth of the globe. The Western Hemisphere, which included North and South America and the Caribbean, this was pretty much off limits to the European powers because the U.S., had implemented what's known as the Monroe Doctrine. The, Mon the, Mon the Monroe Doctrine, this warned off European powers from trying to colonize any further lands in, that, in the Western Hemisphere. Whatever the European powers already had, that was fine, but they couldn't continue to further colonize without risking war from the United or war with the United States. Now, bear in mind, at this time, the U.S. was not the global powerhouse that it is now, but still it would have been very difficult for any European power to wage this kind of war against the United States from across this from across the Atlantic Ocean. Africa had already been pretty much divided up by the Europeans, and so really the only piece of land that really hadn't been colonized by European powers was the Middle East. 
And so the young Turks who now controlled the Ottoman government, they recognized all of these looming threats and they admired European technological advancements. But there are many problems with the Ottoman Empire. We discussed some of them last time, but we'll go further into it. Now, the the young Turks, they really resented and they were upset that they had to rely so much on the Europeans. Despite their admiration for European technology, they certainly didn't like having to rely on the Europeans so much, and they really wanted to free themselves from European uh, dominance. But the fact of the matter is, the young Turks just really didn't know how to do so. They really didn't have a viable plan to free themselves from the European powers. The, the young Turks, they knew that they wanted to industrialize, but in order to industrialize, they needed European technology and training and industry. However, if they asked the Europeans for help in those things, the European powers would want to control those things. And the young Turks didn't want to give up any more power, any more control over to the European powers. And the young Turks and the other people within the Ottoman government, they had no idea on how to get this technology and training on their own, um, which is kind of surprising considering that Japan was was in a much worse state than the Ottoman Empire was just a few decades earlier. But by this time, Japan was on par with many of the European powers. And we mentioned how they had actually defeated Russia in a war a few years earlier. So Japan had found a way to do it. And Japan was much smaller and had much less natural resources and a smaller population than the Ottoman Empire did. But the The uh, Ottoman government was just so dysfunctional, it just wasn't able to do anything. So one of the most important things, well, two of the most important things the young Turks knew that they had to improve within the Ottoman Empire was the transportation and communications within the empire. Now, once again, the Europeans did not mind building these things for the Ottomans. It wasn't like the Europeans were trying to to uh, withhold this technology from the Ottomans, but the Europeans insisted that if they built these things, then they wanted to own and control them, and that's what the Young Turks and the Ottoman government just wouldn't stand for. Now, to be clear, the Ottomans had managed to do a few things, a few modern improvements on their own. They had their own postal service. They had also been able to build their own telegraph network. And they also had a, um, a, a, the beginnings of a telephone network as well. And there were, there were a few telephone systems and telephone lines in Constantinople and Smyrna, which is modern day Izmir in Turkey. But they were still way behind the uh, United States and all the European powers in pretty much every other area. The uh, the steamship was the primary mode of naval tra- transport and travel at this time. And the Europeans dominated Ottoman shipping networks because the Europeans had a whole bunch of modern steamships. The Ottomans also, they had railroads, but they had very few And the few railroads that they did have were mostly owned and controlled by Europeans. And as we mentioned before, the 
the Ottomans only had a few really good roads. Most of them were in the major cities, primarily in Constantinople. But for the most part, Constantinople still relied on old dust roads. There were less than 200 cars. Yes, 200 cars in the entire Ottoman Empire in 1914. Think about that. Less than 200 cars in this entire empire that included parts of Europe, parts of the Caucasus, the um, the uh, Anatolia and Anatolian Peninsula, which is modern day Turkey, most of the Middle East, parts of North Africa and even some parts of Asia and all that region, only 200 cars. To put that into perspective, I went in and did some research. I tell you, I don't do too much research on these episodes, but I had to find out. I went and found out the vehicle registration records for the United States for the same time. In 1914, there were over a million cars in the United States by comparison. So you can see how far back the Ottoman Empire was. Most people in the Ottoman Empire, they still traveled by horse and camel and by animal powered caravans. Now, these caravans, of course, they were more expensive to maintain. It's much more expensive to take care of a horse than to take care of a car. And they're also much slower. So the Ottomans weren't getting any benefit by still using animals in the time of cars and planes and, and steamships and stuff. Now, the Ottomans had many grievances against the European powers. They have uh, primarily three main grievances. Number one, the Ottoman finances were pretty much controlled by the Europeans. This is no one else's fault but the Ottomans themselves. They had defaulted on a billion dollar loan back in 1875 because and this loan of course was from the european powers and because they had defaulted on this loan they were forced to give a european coalition control of their public debt so now basically europeans managed managed almost a quarter of the empire's finances and so since the europeans uh, controlled their, uh, a huge chunk of the empire's revenues. They could also control how the Ottomans could tax certain goods. And you can be certain the Europeans' power made sure the Ottomans didn't tax European goods, but so much. The Ottoman government basically didn't even control its own treasury. Another grievance the Ottomans had against the Europeans were several capitulation agreements that they had with the European powers. This is really the young Turks who had these disagreements, but the young Turks pretty much controlled the Ottoman government at this time. European and American diplomats, they are not even diplomats, just regular citizens, they had complete immunity from Ottoman courts. They could commit any sort of crime and they would have to be judged by their own consulates within the Ottoman Empire. So a regular French citizen could commit murder and there was nothing the Ottoman government could do. Ottoman policemen, they couldn't even enter a European or American residence within the Ottoman Empire without first getting permission from that government's uh, consulate. And the final grievance the Ottomans had against the European powers was that 
many of the European powers we had discussed it in the previous episode, they had asserted their right to protect Christian minorities within the Ottoman Empire. And this was because, once again, I think I mentioned this, the Ottomans had committed atrocities against their religious minorities. And so, as you mentioned, the French had asserted their right to protect uh, Catholic minorities within the empire, and the Russians had um, asserted their right to protect Eastern Orthodox Christians within the empire. And I found out, in well, my interest was piqued in many events of this war, and in looking through it, I found out that the Ottomans had, they committed several more atrocities later on. I don't know when we're going to get to them, but there's um, basically an Armenian holocaust, basically, Armenian genocide that the Ottomans committed against their mostly Armenian Christian uh, subjects within the empire. So that's going to be um, a difficult subject, but we're going to have to talk about it when we get when we get to it. I presume the book is going to talk about it eventually, and when we get there, we'll talk about it at that time. I don't want to get ahead of myself just yet, but this all goes to show, and I'm going to diverge just a bit and get back to the main story. A lot of uh, Muslims, um, we bemoan, we're upset about the dissolution or the disappearance of the caliphate. Now, considering so many members of the Young Turks were Freemasons, and considering the high level of distrust that many Muslims have for, for Freemasonry, I mean... Maybe it was a good thing for the caliphate to be removed out of the Ottoman Empire. Allah knows best how and when or if it will ever come, the caliphate will ever come back. But at this point in time in history, I can say with confidence that the Ottoman Empire was not the best steward for the caliphate, considering all the things that the, they were doing in the name of Islam. The young Turks themselves even though they controlled the government at this point in time, they had lots of problems within themselves. The Young Turks, first and foremost, were very nationalistic. Uh, that is Turkish nationalistic. They rose to power preaching unity between all of the diff all of the empire's different ethnic groups and between all the different religions, religions within the empire. But when the Young Turks actually got in power, they excluded non-Muslims, as well as non-Turkish Muslims as well. So you get a better understanding of this. The ratio of Arabs and Turks in the empire was just about equal. However, the Turks controlled pretty much all of the power in the land. The Arabs were had very little, very little political power at all. And even less so for the other non-Arab and non-Muslim minorities, they were even worse off. They had uh, even less power than the Arabs did. And the thing is that this was kind of odd when you consider how difficult it was to actually define what a Turk was. These Turks, are, as you mentioned, they came from the steppes of Central Asia. Their homeland were the steppes of Central Asia. They just swept down and pretty much occupied this region that had initially been conquered by the Arabs and was partially conquered also by the Greeks before that or by the Byzantine Empire. And so 
their actual homeland was from the steppes of Central Asia, and most of this land was under Russian control. So what this really meant was that there were more Turks living in Russia than there were living in the Ottoman Empire. And most of the people within the Ottoman Empire who spoke Turkish, they were not of Turkish origin. They just spoke Turkish because that was the language of the government. So considering all these problems that the Ottomans had and the dysfunction of the young Turk government and the Ottoman government in general, the young Turks realized that the Ottoman Empire needed an ally. They wanted to start making some changes. The young Turks acknowledged the weaknesses of the empire and they wanted to start making some changes. However, they knew that if they started really pushing for some some of these changes, especially those things that freed them from European control, then the European powers might use this as a pretext for war and accelerate the disintegration and the destruction of the empire. And so what the, what the young Turks wanted to do, they wanted to get a European ally to agree to protect them without taking over their land. And so they went shopping for a protector. All they really need was just one single European power to commit to, commit to protecting them from the other European powers. And truthfully, the most pressing concern for the Ottomans was not really the big guys like the, the French or the British and definitely not the Americans. Their most pro, uh, pressing concern was really the lesser European powers in the immediate area. This included the Italians, the Bulgarians, the Greeks, the Austria-Hungarians. I'm not sure how to say their combined ethnicity. That, it's a nationality, but it's a kingdom. Anyway, I'm getting off the point. But they were also concerned about the Russians, who were very close, because and the Russians were, were consistently swiping little pieces of land from the Ottomans. The British and the French, they were really too far away to be an immediate threat, even though we mentioned how the British had occupied Egypt at this time. So anyway, the Ottomans went shopping for a friend, and they first went to the British. They, uh, and Winston Churchill at the time, he was the first lord of the admiralty, which meant that basically he was in charge of the British Navy. And the British Navy at this time, it was the strongest navy in the world. And Churchill, he actually, uh, Winston Churchill actually liked the idea of forming an alliance with the Ottomans because he was suspicious of the Germans. He had realized that the Russians weren't really a concern for the British anymore. Uh, and he was suspicious. He was concerned that if the British didn't help the Ottomans, then the Germans would. And he was really uh, concerned about the rising power of the German Empire. However, the British Foreign Office, they rejected the idea of an alliance with the Ottomans, and so the Ottomans had to move on. They then went on to the French, and the French also rejected the idea. And then, for some odd reason, the Ottomans went to the Russians, and the Russians also rejected the idea. And that was really stupid of them. I hate to say it like that. But the Russians were probably the most dangerous of all the Allies. They were big, they were fairly strong, and they were the closest one to the Ottoman Empire. The British and the French, they were kind of far away. It would take a lot for the British and the French to really launch a full-scale invasion, but the Russians could do it because they shared borders with the, with the Ottomans, and they were actually pretty strong, at least compared to the Ottomans. Remember, the Russians had been beat by the Japanese a few years earlier, but compared to the Ottomans and their 200 cars, the Russians had a, had a significant advantage. 
Finally, the Ottomans did exactly what Winston Churchill had feared, and they went to the German ambassador in Constantinople and suggested an alliance, and the Germans also turned them down. And while the Young Turks were was doing all of this searching and looking for an ally, war began to appear on the horizon. The beginning of World War I began to show, and the signs were beginning to pop up all over the place. I'm not going to give you a full rundown of the uh, events leading to World War I. Suffice it to say, a very brief rundown will do. Um, an Austria-Hungarian prince was killed in Serbia. Um, I think his name was Prince Ferdinand, I believe. He was killed in Serbia after he was basically assassinated. Um, not assassinated, he was actually killed. He was, when I say assassinated, is um. Oh, I meant not to give you a full rundown. Basically, some uh, Serbian anarchist groups, they plotted to kill the uh, prince, but they failed. And they wound up killing him uh, later on when the opportunity just happened to pop up in, in, their, in their face. They happened to kill him. So the actual assassination, assassination attempt failed, and they wound up killing him later on by sheer luck and coincidence. Anyway, Austria-Hungary has sent um, an ultimatum to Serbia. And the ultimatum was, they basically had two requests of the Serbians. They had to allow Austria-Hungary to investigate the prince's death. And then Serbia had to take action and root out the terrorist cells that were responsible for the prince's death. And this ultimatum was designed so that Serbia would have no choice but to reject it. And because of the wording of the ultimatum, everyone in Europe, all the European powers, the European governments, they could kind of see that war would, would almost certainly break out in Europe. And this was because that, as I mentioned, the ultimatum was designed so that the Serbians would have to reject it just out of honor and to maintain their sovereignty. Furthermore, everyone knew that even if the Serbians had accepted it, most likely the um, Austria-Hungarian kingdom would have found some other reason to go to war to them. Everyone knew that this was just a pretext for war by the Austria-Hungarian kingdom. So Winston Churchill in 1914, while all these events are happening, he's 39 years old and he sees that war is on the horizon. As we mentioned, he was the he was the Lord Admiralty. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty, meaning he was in charge of Britain's Navy. He had basically worked his way to the top. He had lots of energy and lots of talents and he had fought his way to the top of the British government. But in doing so, of course, he had made several enemies who thought that he was too young for such a high position. He was also known to be very belligerent and coarse in his speech. And so he made a lot of enemies. A lot of people grumbled about him, about the way he acted. And he was also prone to be very noisy and get into heated arguments and yell about all sorts of things. But then he would also know, he was also known to be very flaky and change his mind at a drop of a hat. Another thing about uh, Churchill, as we'll see later on, he was a bit of a warmonger. He had been a soldier within the British Army in Sudan, Cuba, and India. And he had also been a prisoner of war in South Africa. He achieved this position where he was at the eve of, um, at the beginning of World War I, when he was 36 years old, three years before this whole thing started. And 
During his time as the first Lord of the Admiralty, he had modernized and upgraded Britain's Navy. And at this point in time, he was concerned about the signs of war about to break out in Europe. And so he decided to confiscate Turkey, two of Turkey's or two of the Ottoman warships. Let me explain that real quick. The British had contracted to build modern warships called dreadnoughts for several nations. And one of them was the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire had gone through a a whole lot of trouble to raise the money for these two ships. And these two modern warships, they were a source of national pride. And the Ottomans really needed them to counter the Greeks and the Russians, who they viewed as their closest enemies in the area. So the Ottomans were really hoping for the British to deliver on these two ships that they had paid, bought, and ordered. And... The dreadnoughts, these two ships, they were supposed to be delivered to the to the Ottomans in August 1914. However, by July 28th, three days before that, by July 28th, 1914, Serbia had not yet responded to Austria-Hungary's ultimatum. And so, since Serbia had not responded yet, Austria-Hungary began preparing for war against Serbia. Russia had an agreement to protect Serbia, and they also began mobilizing for war. Germany had an alliance with Austria-Hungary, and Germany also began preparing for war. France had an alliance with Russia, and France also began preparing for war. So as Winston Churchill sees all these fairly powerful nations, really, these are the most powerful nations in the world at this time, he sees them gearing up for war, and he gets a little antsy, he gets a little concerned, and so he decides to renege on the agreement with the Ottomans, and he decides to confiscate their two ships. So really, at this point in time, the British weren't really sure if they were going to enter the war or not. And I won't get into the details of how they entered the war, but at this point in time, as all these different nations are preparing for war, Britain is a, is really in a state of confusion. They're not sure if they're going to enter the war. They don't know how things are going to play out, but they are concerned about the way things are going. So one thing was for sure, though, was that Winston Churchill did not trust the Germans at all. And the German uh, Navy was about the same size as the British and perhaps the only Navy in the world that could go toe to toe with the British. So with these things in mind, Winston Churchill felt it was justified to confiscate these two dreadnoughts that he had promised to the Ottomans because he believed it would help to give the British the advantage. However, when he proposed this idea to the British Parliament, they shot it down and they ordered Churchill to deliver the ships to the Ottomans. At this point in time, Britain was not yet in the war. Uh, The Ottomans had not declared war on the British, and so the British had no justification for seizing the Ottoman ships that they had promised. 
However, Winston Churchill decided to go against these orders and he confiscated the ships anyway. He didn't outright confiscate them. He just delayed the deliverance, but essentially he confiscated them. He just didn't, he just didn't put it into words. And so with this in mind, uh, with the way things played out later on, however, um, historians, maybe revisionist historians, they praise Churchill for doing this, for defying the British Parliament. And this is probably after World War II when Winston Churchill had been, had been lionized and made into this great hero. This is probably after that point in time, he was, um, he was, he was recognized and praised for thinking ahead because, as we, of course, know, the Ottomans did ultimately enter the war. But we're not there yet. So Winston Churchill is delaying the deliverance of these two dreadnoughts. And the Ottomans, they begin to get suspicious. They're expecting the ships to be coming into their harbor any moment now. Uh, the Ottomans had not you know, declared war on anybody, but they could kind of tell that things were going on. And they keep asking the British, where are our ships? Where are our ships? And the British keep giving them excuses. And the Ottomans, they kind of put two and two together. And they realize by July 31st, they realized that Churchill had actually confiscated their ships and he wasn't about to hand them over. And so with this in mind, the Ottomans are now considering their options. The Germans, on the other hand, they are beginning to reconsider an alliance with the Ottomans themselves. Most German government officials did not really want an alliance with the Ottomans. Like most European nations, the Germans, they had their doubts about the ability of the Ottomans to actually wage a modern war. And however, other people within the German government, as war was beginning to brew all over Europe, they could see that Germany was about to fight a two-pronged war. They would have to fight France on the west and Russia on the east. And that was going to be a very difficult thing to execute. And so there were some people within the German government who really wanted and began to reconsider an alliance with the Ottomans because they thought at the very least, it would be a good idea to have an ally on Russia's southern border. The Ottomans, for their, for their part, they didn't want to get involved in the war. They knew they didn't stand a chance against any of the stronger European powers. But at the same time, at, at this time of the war, as it was just, it hadn't really started yet, but people were just a lot of saber rattling and, and, and declarations and mobilizations and stuff, but not actually shooting just yet. At this time, everyone kind of expected the war to be over in a few months. No one expected it to turn into the, the ridiculous slog that it ultimately turned into. So the Ottomans bought into that same thinking, believing that the war would be over very quickly. Because of the Ottomans' poor transportation networks, everyone knew they would take months for the Ottomans to mobilize because a lot of their... Um, a lot of the soldiers would be traveling on on single car, single railroad tracks, and also traveling by camel and caravan, all sorts of craziness. So, the Ottomans they were hoping that all of this would be over by the time they even had to begin mobilizing. And so, they declared that they were going to be remain neutral in, in any coming conflict to toward, to try to give themselves some time to try to figure things out. 
And uh, the Ottomans, they used this time and used this declaration of neutrality to their advantage. Now, the Ottomans, they really did want German protection. So they were able to convince the, the Ottomans wanted protection and certain members within the German government, they wanted an ally on the um, on the Russian southern border. And so on August 1st, 1914, the Ottomans and the Germans, they actually did sign a treaty. And the Germans agreed to protect the empire, the Ottoman Empire, from foreign threats, whereas the Ottomans agreed to remain neutral in this coming conflict. However, they did agree to assist Germany if Germany was obligated to enter the war. This is where technicalities and treaties come in, and I'll try to explain it as best as I can. By this time, August 1st, 1914, Germany had already declared war on Russia. Ottomans knew it, the Germans knew it, everybody knew it. However, the Germans were not obligated to fight the Russians. They declared war on the Russians. They had an alliance with the with the uh, Austria-Hungary Empire, but it was a, a defensive pact. At this time, the Russians hadn't actually attacked the Austria-Hungarians, and so there was no real need for Germany to get into the war. Germany instead declared war on Russia because they felt it was the right thing to do. So technically speaking, the Ottomans were not obligated to join the war in order to assist Germany. And so many people wonder, Many historians wonder, why did Germany even agree to an alliance with the Ottomans? After all, the Germans, they knew the limitations of the Ottoman forces. The Germans had been advising the Ottoman military for years. And so they knew that the Ottomans didn't really have that much to offer. They knew it would take the Ottomans months just to get soldiers to the front lines because they had to travel on camel and horseback and stuff. In fact, the German chancellor, which is like a president, the German chancellor, he had ordered the Germans to refuse any treaty with the Ottomans unless the Ottomans were able to take serious actions against the Russians. And most people within the, the uh, German government, they had doubts about the Ottoman ability to do anything in this coming conflict. So this makes some historians wonder why did the Germans agree to an alliance? What did the Ottomans have to offer? If they all knew that the Ottomans were really too weak to take on any of these powers, what did the Ottomans offer to convince the Germans to enter into an alliance? There is evidence that the Ottomans, or the Young Turks more precisely, they offered to give the Germans their two ships that had been confiscated by the British. But the Ottomans were offering something that they really couldn't provide. The Ottomans knew by July 31st that Winston Churchill had confiscated the two ships he had promised them. However, the Germans and the Ottomans, they entered into their treaty on August 1st, so just one day ahead. So there are some people who believe that the young Turks offered these two ships knowing that they had already been confiscated by the British and that they would not have to actually deliver on them because by the time the 
um, Ottomans were obligated to come into the war or deliver the ships, the, Ottoman, the young Turks could simply say, well, the British seized the ships after the war broke out, and so we weren't able to deliver them. And the Germans, however, would still be obligated to hold up their part of the treaty and defend the Ottoman Empire. That's one idea about how the Ottomans or the Young Turks actually were able to get the Germans to agree to an alliance. So, well, in any case, the Young Turks, they continued to collaborate with the German officials in Constantinople. They convinced the Germans to send two warships that had been stationed, uh, two German warships that had been stationed uh, off the coast of North Africa. They had convinced the Germans to send those to protect the Turkish um, coastlines. Other members within the Young Turks, however, they did not like this idea. Other members of the Young Turk government, they vetoed it. They didn't want to appear to be on Germany's side, and they really did want to remain neutral. We spoke about how there are different factions within the uh, the Young Turk movement, or whatever it was, and there were some who wanted to remain neutral, others, however, who did not. In any case, the, the majority of them seemed to veto this idea, and when the German government found out about the veto, they told their admiral in, uh, off the North African coast to stay put because the young Turks or the Turkish government had rejected the idea. Nonetheless, the German admiral, he decided to ignore his orders and he decided to bring those two ships to Turkey anyway. So when these two German ships reach the Ottoman um, uh, seas, basically the, the Strait of, of Dardanelles, the Ottomans had to make the best use of it. And so the Ottomans, they at first, they refused to allow the German ships through the Strait of Dardanelles. They were still trying to appear neutral. Meanwhile, these two German ships that had gone from North Africa to uh, Turkey, they were being pursued by a British fleet that was just a, a little bit behind them. And so the Ottomans used this difficult situation that the Germans were in to their advantage. They demanded that the Germans give them some concessions in order for the Turks uh, to allow these two German ships through the Dardanelles. You need to take a look at the Strait of Dardanelles on a map or something so you can see where it is and the, and the strategic role it would play in any war in this part of the world. So the concessions, the, the demands that the Ottomans made of the Germans, they wanted the Germans to eliminate the capitulation agreements. We spoke about those earlier. And they also wanted the Germans to promise a share of the spoils of war if the Axis powers won the war. At first, the Germans refused to give up any of these things. But ultimately, because their two ships were about to be destroyed by the British fleet, they had to give in. They agreed. And so with that, the Ottomans allowed the German ships to enter their, their, um, their seas, their naval area. And so once the German ships were within uh, Turkish territory or Ottoman territory, territory the um, Ottomans continued to push the advantage. They suggested that the Germans sell them their ships. And at first, of course, the Germans refused once again. But the Ottomans, their argument was that if they, if the Germans sold their ships to the Ottomans, then it would appear to the British that not that the 
Ottomans were joining the war, but instead that they were replacing the ships that Churchill had confiscated. But the Germans weren't having any of it. They refused to do so. Uh, the Ottomans, however, they basically ignored <laughs> what the Germans said. The two German ships were now within Ottoman territory. Uh, the Germans were too busy trying to mobilize this war. The Germans didn't really have a strong hand to play with. And so the Ottomans, they basically ignored the German refusal and announced the sale of these ships, even though the sale never actually happened. When the Ottomans announced that they had bought these two ships from the Germans, the Germans had no choice but to go along with it. And as the ambassador, the German ambassador to Constantinople said, had he uh, denied it or had he gone against that, then it would have turned the Ottoman people against the Germans. And that just wasn't something that the Germans could afford at that time. So now the Ottomans suddenly found themselves with two new ships, basically. They had somehow another finessed out of the Germans. But in any case, the Ottomans still needed the Germans, however, because the Ottomans didn't have the sailors with the technical expertise to man these modern warships. And so German sailors had to be recruited to man the ships. Well, the same German sailors that were on the ships in the first place, they had to formally enlist into the Ottoman army. They had to wear Ottoman uniforms, even all the way down to the little fezes and everything. Winston Churchill, on the other hand, by this time, he sees all this stuff happening in uh, Constantinople and in Turkey, and he's just furious with the Ottomans. The Ottomans were supposed to be neutral, from his point of view, that is. The Ottomans were supposed to be neutral, but they seem to be siding with the Germans. They allow these two ships in, and they buy the ships from the Germans. And he didn't believe that story about the, the Ottomans uh, saying they had, they had simply purchased the ships. And when the news got out about the Ottomans buying these ships from the Germans, Winston Churchill, um, he received a lot of backlash from British politicians blaming him for pushing the Ottomans to do this by confiscating their ships. Anyway, Winston Churchill would mention how he was a bit of a warmonger. He ordered his ships in the region to sink any Turkish ship that was carrying German soldiers. And so with this aggression from Winston Churchill, the Ottomans responded in kind. The Ottomans had signed a treaty that would allow every all sea traffic through the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles were especially important for the Russians as they needed this was basically the the Russian only warm weather warm water port. Most of Russia is along the Arctic and a little bit away out to the east is still along the Arctic. Most of Russian Russia's coastline basically is facing um, frozen waters. And so they needed this warm water port that goes through the Cas the Black Sea, then the Caspian Sea, then through the Dardanelles into the Mediterranean. The Russians really needed this um, passageway. When Winston Churchill announced this threat to sink Turkish ships, the Ottomans, they responded by closing off the Dardanelles to Russia and the British. And this was very difficult for the Russians as they needed this in order to get into the Mediterranean Sea. 
So the Ottomans, they began to mine the waters around the Dardanelles. They allowed German ships to come in and blockade the area so Russian ships couldn't come through. And this was very difficult for the Russians as the Russians, this is how they sent their wheat exports to the rest of the world. And they needed the proceeds or the profit from these wheat exports to buy weapons in order to fight this war. And so the Ottomans had managed to, to choke off a very important part uh, of the Russians. And once again, British politicians, they, they blamed Churchill for this because it was his response that prompted the Ottomans to do this in the first place. So for Churchill, he could see that the Ottomans, or he believed that leads to the Ottomans were steadily moving more towards the German side, but no one had officially declared war yet, at least between the Ottomans and the British. And this was upsetting to Churchill. He wanted to go to war. He wanted, he really wanted to fight the Ottomans. He really wanted it. However, he didn't want to be the first one to declare war against them. He wanted them to declare war or he wanted to um, prompt them to get into war. He had even um, he even wanted to send a fleet to de- to go into the into Turkish territory and destroy those two German ships to force the Ottomans to declare war on the British. He was going to do everything he could to do it, but the British Parliament held him back. The Germans they were equally upset with the Ottomans because the Ottomans, they they thought they had signed an alliance with the Ottomans and here were the Ottomans trying to maintain their neutrality. And uh, the Germans were also hoping that Churchill would do something to provoke the Ottomans into the war. But, uh, you know, they were doing their best to push the Ottomans into declaring, formally declaring war against the Allied powers. At this point in time, the by it was now getting into uh, September or so, September 1914, the Germans were beginning to realize that this wouldn't be a quick a quick war, that this might be a very long and drawn out fight. And so the Germans were hoping that the British actually would do something to force the Ottomans into the fight. However, the young Turks who controlled the Ottoman government, they insisted that they would only join the fight if Bulgaria joined them in the fight. The reason being is that the Ottomans would have to first cross over Bulgarian land to even fight in Europe. So they needed Bulgarian cooperation. But also the Ottomans had recently fought wars against Bulgaria and they were afraid that if they sent their soldiers away, Bulgaria might use this as an opportunity to attack the empire when it was weak. However, Bulgaria resisted Turkish attempts to try to draw them into the war. So the Germans were pushing the Turks, the Turks were pushing the Bulgarians, the Bulgarians said, no, we don't really want to join this war. All the Bulgarians did was sign a very limited defensive agreement that really wouldn't do uh, the Ottomans or nor the Germans any good. So the German ambassador, he is out of his wits. He is very upset by he's being pulled in lots of different directions. His government is telling him to push the Ottomans, push the Turks into the war. Meanwhile, the Turks are resisting and saying, we don't want to join the war. He begs and pleads with the young Turkish lead, the young Turk leaders, but none of them really listened to them. He tried to explain to his own government how difficult it was, how difficult it would be for the Ottomans to even field an army and even mobilize for war. 
and he got fed up. He asked for he asked for permission to leave Constantinople and return to Germany, but the uh, German government refused, and they reiterated that his orders were to keep trying to push the Ottomans into the war. Meanwhile, the Ottomans are trying to push their advantage. So by September 1914, the young Turks, out of nowhere, they announced the abolition of all of these different uh, capitulation agreements that they had with the different European powers. They realized that the young Turks sort of realized that Europe needs them now. Uh, Britain, Britain wants them. And Germany wants them. And so they realize that they have the upper hand in a way by remaining neutral. And so the young Turks take advantage of the situation and they abolish and end all of these capitulation agreements. Normally, during normal times, the European powers would have protested this and might have even used force to enforce the capitulation agreements. However, both sides, they're trying to appease the Ottomans now. The Germans, they want the Ottomans to join the war, and the British want the Ottomans to stay out of the war. So, with that, the um, all of the European powers accepted the um, capitulation, abolition, without any argument. And that is where we are going to stop for today. In the next episode, we will discuss how the young Turks start pushing the Ottomans closer to war, and we'll see how all that plays out. I haven't read it yet myself, so I really don't know what happens, but we'll get to it soon. So until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.